When a lot of neuroscientists think about working in a lab, they're thinking about an environment surrounded by equipment, animal cages, and maybe at best a window or two. Not so with our guest. Alice Chow is a graduate student in the lab of Tom Cornyn at University of Maryland, Baltimore County, or UMBC. Her research focuses on mantis shrimp. And while she is a neuroscientist first, she's also a marine biologist. We got to catch up with Alice one day when she was amid wrapping up her thesis in lab. It's great to have you here, Alice. Thanks so much for joining us. Of course, thanks so much. I'm really happy to be here. So the first question we like to ask is what was your path to your current position where you are now? Um, and can you tell us a little bit about what that is that you do? Uh, yeah, of course. Uh, so I study mantis shrimp brains and I ended up doing so kind of by accident. Uh, my background is in affective neuroscience in non-human primates, so the study of emotion. Uh, but my last quarter in undergrad at UC Davis, I did a set of uh, courses at the Bodega Marine Laboratory. And there I realized that marine biology isn't just about dolphins and sea turtles, and that I could pursue that as well as neuroscience at the same time. When I was applying at grad schools, I decided I wanted to research sensory systems, specifically in marine invertebrates, and ended up in a lab that studies an animal with possibly the most strange and absurd visual system that could possibly exist. To back up a little bit, how did you choose UMBC? So I didn't really choose UMBC as I chose my PI, Tom Cronin. When, and I know this is, this can differ a lot between graduate students and between programs, but my path to graduate school wasn't applying necessarily to programs. I reached out to various PIs whose research I was interested in first. And then once I had spoken with them and learned whether or not they had space in their labs, I would apply to the program itself. You recently wrote a review about arthropods, and mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could first just walk us through again what an arthropod is and yeah. you know, what makes them a good model organism for studying evolution and development, which you, which you had covered extensively in your review. Um, yeah, I did. Uh, I know there are zero mentions. Oh, no, there is one very small part of mantis shrimp in that review paper. Uh, but this was kind of a pet project of something that I'm really interested in. So for the uninitiated, arthropods are animals in the phylum arthropoda. They're characterized by having an exoskeleton, a segmented body and jointed appendages. Um, it includes groups such as insects, arachnids like spiders and scorpions and mites, crustaceans and myriapods, which include centipedes and millipedes. And I think it's really important to study arthropods uh, for a number of reasons. I think there's inherent value in understanding animals that aren't just representational, but have really specialized adaptations. And so I think a lot about how much we as both scientists and members of the broader public community have lost sight of the value of curiosity-driven research, uh, which is work that's performed without uh, thinking about the practical end. And within arthropods, there is such a wealth of diverse adaptations that can be leveraged to understand how evolution has found solutions for life's most persistent problems. In the review I wrote, um, it's specifically about animals that are amphibiotic, which means that they spend different parts of their life stages in either water or air. And so this was really interesting for me to look at because as a visual ecologist and neuroethologist, water and air have very, very different optical properties. 
given these differences in, in air and water, what sort of optical and neural adaptations do these animals have? And this is particularly ideal to study in arthropods because one, there are amphibiotic arthropods. Two, they tend to be extremely, um, they're an extremely diverse and successful group of animals that can be found everywhere around the world, on land and in the ocean, on every continent, in environments from cities to rainforests to deserts. And not to mention, they're also both ecologically and economically important. Without pollinators, for example, we wouldn't be able to feed ourselves and studying their brains can also tell us a lot about how to design, say, biomimetic robots or how exactly mosquitoes find me in a crowd. Uh, so I think not only do they make uh, a good organism for studying um, evolution because they are so diverse and development because again, their life histories can vary quite a bit. They're just important animals to study period. Yeah, like what you said about the fact that, you know, it doesn't have to be, you don't have to go into the experiment with the end goal in mind, or that's not necessarily always beneficial, um, right? Like you can happenstance find things that we can then relate back to maybe more solution oriented science or applicable, but right, we're not going to know that those things exist without these kinds of explorative studies. Yeah, exactly. Coming back to the, the mantis shrimp, what, what are they and how do they fit into your current research? So, oh, mantis shrimp. They've been having kind of a moment in pop culture. Uh, they, so some people might be familiar with mantis shrimps already. They were featured in an oatmeal comic uh, several years back. Zafrank had a True Facts video about them in YouTube, which is actually pretty accurate. Um, and they were featured on a couple episodes of Radiolab. So people who aren't familiar with them, mantis shrimps are predaceous uh, crustaceans that range in size from, well, the size of your pinky finger to maybe the length of your arm. There's over 400 species that diverge from other crustaceans probably about 400 million years ago. And they're famous for two things. They're famous for their really intricate visual systems and they're famous for punching things really hard. Their eyes, and this is what I mean by um, studying animals with adaptations to problems that we never would have thought of when studying like a mouse or something. Mantis shrimp have trinocular eyes, not binocular, trinocular eyes. So one single eye has three field of views um, that move independently of each other. They are capable of linear and circular polarization vision. And they're the only animal that we know of so far that has circular polarization vision. And they have 16 classes of photoreceptors which contribute to their color vision. And of course, this leads to some really interesting questions about how, how all of that visual information is processed and how it's combined with sensory information to generate behaviors such as their punch, their very, very, very hard punch. Um, for my research, um, because we don't actually know that much about mantis shrimp brains to begin with, I study the structure of the mantis shrimp brain, both in adults and in larvae. So you can see the theme here. I'm actually quite interested in, in development of arthropods. Uh, but more specifically, I study a region of the arthropod brain called the central complex. It's a very conserved region that's found in nearly all arthropods. And in insects, where most of the work has been done, it's been shown to be very, very important in sensory processing, in arousal states, orientation and navigation, behavior selection, literally you name it. But 
there isn't much known about mantis shrimp brains yet, but with my work, we can compare the structure to what's known about other arthropod brains. So they were complex enough that there's numerous cells that you're not dividing by cell type. Cause I was thinking of Drosophila, for instance, right? It's, it's, there's certain cells that are named at this point, not more than regions. Is that correct? Or am I thinking about um, the worms? You're thinking of the worms. I'm thinking of the worms. Yeah. So like C. elegans has. C. elegans are only, right, have named neurons. They have, we know every single neuron in C. elegans. Drosophila, we are getting there. There's a group, um, there's Janelia, well, the Janelia group has been doing a lot of work to map out the connectome of the Drosophila brain. So that is underway, but it is a big task. These are um, Next. these are important scientific concepts. I mean, I've I've been focusing on the predaceous crustacean as just a really great uh, name for uh, like a punk rock band. So oh my god, I would totally that. listen to them. That's free. That's just free for anyone <laughs> anyone listening. That's, that's free for you to take. <laughs> so how do you how do you collect these animals? How do you get them into the lab? Is there a breeder that you order them from, or do you have to go out and find them? So. No one, surprisingly, no one has figured out how to breed them successfully in lab yet. I know it's a pain, uh, but we have a supplier in Florida that catches them for us when we call, but we also do field work. And some of the best parts of my graduate career have been going out into the field. Uh, so most of our research is done at the Lizard Island Research Station on the Great Barrier Reef, which has the greatest diversity of mantis shrimp in the world. And this allows for some really cool interspecies comparative research. Um, and it also means I get to go to the Great Barrier Reef. I know, I am absurdly lucky uh, to get to do field work in a place like that. That's so cool. Yeah, whoever thought that you could be a neuroscientist and just like hang out on the beach catching shrimp. By the way, I didn't mention this earlier, they're not actually shrimp like the shrimp that we eat. Um, <laughs> so the shrimp that we eat are in the order decapod, decapoda, uh, which includes shrimp, lobster, crabs, all the yummy ones. Mantis shrimp are part of, are stomatopods, part of stomatopoda, which is a whole different order um, to it within crustacea. I just looked them up. Um, did Google images maybe just prefer very colorful images or are they very colorful? So <laughs> Google images, the internet loves the peacock mantis shrimp, which is the one that constantly comes up. It's the most charismatic one. It's the one that all of the internet memes show, but there are 400 plus species and I like the other ones a little bit more. <laughs> I like the underdogs. When you say charismatic, do you mean just visually but also, or also socially? Uh, more, wait, what was the first word? Vis visually or, or more, more socially? Um, not socially within themselves, but socially by scientists and the public. Um, I mean, their vision is also very charismatic, but they're not very charismatic towards each other. They're kind of mean towards each other. Do you think they have colors that we don't see because they have these extra receptors? They absolutely have, um, well, so I talked earlier a little bit about circular polarization vision and Part of the reason why we think they have circular polarization vision, or at least some species do, is that those species have body parts. When it reflects light, the light becomes circularly polarized. 
So it is a method of quote, like secret communication. So everyone always asks like, why, why can they see a bajillion colors? And that's a little bit of a misconception. We know that they have many photoreceptor classes. We know that they express uh, scientifically a butt ton of opsins, which are the light sensitive proteins responsible for color vision. But also behavioral tests have shown that mantis shrimp actually are not that good at discriminating colors. We only have three types of color receptors. However, because of how our visual processing works, we're actually extremely good at differentiating between colors, right? So I'm looking at my desk right now and it's like 50 shades of brown and I can tell all of those apart. Mantis shrimp will call, for example, and this is not necessarily scientific whatsoever, they will see a, uh, like a cherry and an apple and say it's the exact same red. Does that make sense? Right, so they might have colors that we can't even name or, or things that we might not be able to visualize, but it's just that they can't discriminate between things that are similar. Yes, so it, it, you're, the answer is both. So they're yeah, not very good at discriminating between colors. However, their um, light sensitivity extends beyond what we are capable of seeing. For example, they have UV vision. Are there any major, like, are there outstanding questions in the field right now that are of particular interest to the arthropod or mantis shrimp community that I, I presume it's related to the eye maybe, but I was wondering like even maybe in just in terms of like the circuits, like how that gets processed and into connecting the, you know, yeah. vision with behavior. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of questions out there. Um, I would say in the broader neuroethological community, which is the group of scientists that study the neural basis of behavior, um, one big question is how do animals make decisions? And I know, of course, this is a bigger question in neuroscience, but there are many insect researchers who take advantage of um, the, and I hate using the word simple because insects are not simple, but they are simpler than mammals, right? Um, for example, there is a researcher, Dr. Gwyneth Card at Genelia, who studies when a fly is going to decide when to take off or not, and how do they take off, right? These sort of decisions, this sort of decision-making process is really important to understand for many reasons. Uh, there's also many researchers trying to understand the neural circuitry that drives navigation. Uh, and this is not just within arthropods. Um, my former lab mate and good friend, uh, Dr. Ricky Patel, discovered that mantis shrimp are very good at navigating. And so the big question is, is that, okay, what is the neural circuitry that drives this ability? And how does this compare to insects who also have these same abilities? And actually the region that we know drives a lot of this is the central complex, which is what I study. For me in particular, I'm really interested in how neural circuits change or not in response to either changing environments or um, through development, because both ecology and behavior and morphology, especially in arthropods, can change a lot over development. Do you have a favorite memory while conducting research so far? I, I love being in the field and in the water. Um, it doesn't happen that often for me because I'm a neuroscientist first. So I don't get to go to the field as often as some of my colleagues. But the last time I was there, a colleague and I would spend hours with what we would call um, a yabby pump, which is basically a very simple vacuum sealed pump, which we use to catch mantis shrimps that live in the sand. 
And so using the Yabby pump, we can pull up columns of soft sand where we see a mantis shrimp burrow, dump the sand into a mush tray so that the sand sifts out and hopefully find some animals. And these ones are pretty small. And it always ends up being really goofy because there's only a short amount of time when the tide is at the right height. Uh, my friend and I are both kind of short. And so as the day goes on and the tide rises, we're trying to keep everything from floating away, including ourselves and the animals in the tubes. And so that's just, it's just fun uh, to be in the field like that. There's this, uh, you know, long history of, um, I guess, collaboration between marine biology and, and neuroscience. I'm thinking back to like the Marine Biology Laboratory and the creation of that in Cape Cod, where um, the first uh, octopus neuron, right, was... Um, so are you talking about the discovery of action potentials? I think so. I guess it was a squid, not an octopus. Yeah, so those were on the giant, giant squid axons. Mm -hmm. yeah, squid giant axons, not giant squid axons. Right. It's <laughs> a very distinct difference between those two. <laughs> uh, right. Yeah. A little easier to catch exactly. when they're big. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, I so uh, sorry, I'm, I will let you ask the question. No, go ahead. Oh, no. Um, so I think there are a lot of benefits to study using marine animals to study neurobiology. I don't think there's like a specific single benefit per se but they're a huge untapped resource for understanding neurobiology. As you mentioned, action potentials were discovered from doing research on squid and the basic tenets of neuromodulation were established with the stomatogastric ganglion in crabs and lobsters, right? Like that's part of how, part of their digestive system, but we know how neuromodulators work because um, some people like Eve Martyr, Dr. Eve Martyr decided to study this little cluster of neurons. Um, research in cephalopods like octopus can tell us about learning, memory, and cognition in an animal with a totally different brain than us, but also has extremely complex behaviors. And there's also been significant attention around hydra, which although not technically marine, is a freshwater cnidarian. Um, they don't have brains, but they do have neural nets, which can help us understand how networks of neurons interact. They're transparent, which makes it easier to visualize neural activity. They're small, so you can see all the neurons at once. They produce asexually, so you can have clones and they live forever. And I'm not kidding about that. They're basically immortal. Um, so just with these few examples, like you can see how much potential there is in studying animals outside of like the big four models. I think model organisms are actually very, very important, right? Like they're genetically tractable. You can do experiments that you would never imagine to do in something else, right? Someone asked me if you, you could do CRISPR in manuscripts and I literally just laughed in their face. <laughs> um, but I think as, and I mean, I think this is just like how I've been trained to think about um, not just neuroscience, but biology in general. I think to really understand the principles driving an animal, you have to understand both its environment, its behavior, and its natural history. Otherwise, like for take for example, Drosophila, um, many times you're using these lines that have been bred so far beyond their wild, the, than, their, than the wild, even the wild type in labs is different than the wild type out in the wild. Um, and I think, that could lead to some confounding results. 
unfortunately, but. Absolutely, and I think because um, we use rats and mice so often, we sort of impose what we want to study in humans on them and make them little yeah. humans instead of thinking of them as animals that come from the wild. Yeah. Like for instance, focusing a lot on their visual system when that isn't their primary um, sensory source, I guess, yeah. um, interpreting the world. Marine animals has an undertapped area for understanding how these genetic programs can are divergent across species and what gives rise to different organisms is are from a developmental standpoint is, is fascinating. Yeah, it's very, very cool. And I wish more people studied it with from like a comparative context. It's it's such a cool question. And I think it would help both to understand not just the, the evolution of anything, but well, I have nothing to say there. It's just cool. <laughs> Sorry. No, I think that's a great place to get to. <laughs> it's just cool. <laughs> you just want to know this stuff. <laughs> okay, so our last question, fun question. What do you do when you're not doing science? Um, I'm still a total nerd. Um, <laughs> I love to cook and read. Um, and I also have a fondness for puzzles, not like jigsaw puzzles, but like, you know, uh, word puzzles or video game puzzles. I just, I like puzzles, um, which is probably why I'm a scientist. Um, and so like my ideal day, and this sounds like a dating profile thing, but is poking around a bookstore, reading in a cafe, and then like a potluck picnic with friends. Like that is the ideal day for me. Um, and maybe at the picnic, we'll talk a little bit shop, but not too much. That sounds wonderful. Do you have a, a phone app game that you were playing recently that you like? I also love puzzles. And Ooh. But like any suggestions so i okay the first one that okay there's two that come to mind recently and sadly they're both on apple arcade because i had got a free trial of it oh uh, yes but um there is fantasian i think and it's um by the people who made final fantasy mm. yeah it's a little bit less of a puzzle than it is like turn-based, but if you like puzzle games, I highly, highly recommend Baba Is You. That's one of my favorites. Ooh. Yeah. So it's like, a, play it, let me know what you think, <laughs> but it is one of the best and most original puzzle games I've ever played. Oh, it's a Nintendo game. So they have it on Nintendo. They have it on Steam, if you have Steam. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I got that for like Jackbox games, right? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. So you like can. It's yeah. Not a very expensive game. I think it's like ten bucks tops. Then you'll get a lot of play out of it. Thank you. Yeah. No, of course. I'm always happy to happy to talk about video games. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was so excited when they I saw that Animal Crossing had put in a mantis shrimp. Getting <laughs> <laughs> the exposure that you need. It's true. Although it was a peacock mantis shrimp, but. <laughs> Of course, what other one would they have put in? <laughs> <laughs> the recognizable one. Yeah, actually, when you said uh, it's been covered by Radio Lab recently, I was like, oh, yeah, that's where I know it from. <laughs> yeah, so sure. that's my PI that's in, in the episode. Oh, cool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'll have to go back and listen to that again. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your day oh, to educate yeah, us about, about your research and, mm -hmm. and who you are. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks. Yeah, truly. Thank you so much for, for joining. Thank you again to Alice Chow for coming on our show and sharing her sea of knowledge with us. You can find her on social media and learn more about marine neurobiology by following her at overbrainbows on Twitter.